I want to, uh, this morning, introduce our study with some, and it's part of the, the introductory pages, with some introductory things. But I want to, I want to draw your attention to verse 3 of chapter 1 for just a minute by way of introduction. And then I want to deal with some of these introductory issues. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed what is written therein. <clears throat> For the time is near. This, there are seven blessings in the book of Revelation. This first one is a really important one. Now, do you understand the language? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear and heed. So I want you to anticipate a blessing as we study this book together. This is one of the few books of the Bible, and I'm, I'm not saying this in any self-effacing way or that you have a selfish reason for studying this. It is a fact of this book that God is promising blessings to those who study it, those who hear it, and then don't forget those who heed it. That is, pay attention and, and where it is necessary, obey. So it's, that's, that's remarkable. That does not always occur in a book uh, of the Bible. Let's, um, let's talk about some introductory things, uh, and some of that is in the note. The title of this book is The Revelation. If you read Greek and you would go to this, all you would see is the talk apocalypsis. I know that doesn't mean anything to you, but it's, it's the revelation. And in my translation, and perhaps in yours, it has the revelation, it's going to have different things, but some have the revelation to John. Throughout the scripture, this particular book, it's actually the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the revelation of John. That, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm not nitpicking, this is a very important point. This isn't the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. Now that might seem like a minor difference to you, but it's a very important difference. Apocalypsis is a Greek word, and we translate it revelation. But it's like, another way of translating it is it's the vision, or literally, plural, the visions that Jesus Christ gave to John for us. (laughs) And so it's, um, it's an unfolding of a series of revelations, visions, and every single one of them, John is instructed to write it down. And often as we go through this, you'll see John will write, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. He is writing down what he sees. Sometimes... It is interpreted for us. Sometimes it is not interpreted for us. And I'm I'm trying to say that by way of introduction because that is really, really important. So every time we see John when he says, and I saw, and he writes down what he saw, what he saw in in that vision, we want to look for, is there somewhere where it's helping us to interpret this so we can understand it? And it's really remarkable. I have a little chart which we'll look at later on in our study of the number of places where it is interpreting it. And we have clarity what it's saying. But other parts it's not interpreting for us. And so that's kind of the problem or the challenge, is how do we interpret? Because some of the things that John sees are really, quite honestly, very bizarre. Because he's using all these figures of speech to describe what he sees. And uh, at times, that's going to be a bit of a challenge. And that's why some, and honestly, to be blunt, not that much, but some of this is a bit controversial. Only in the sense is, are we accurately interpreting it? So, um, this is this is fun. I think <laughs> this is fun if we do it right, if we do it to the glory of God and build on everything we have been studying. Because remember, uh, and, and that's how I've tried to do this with this particular block of material. We've looked at Daniel. Previous to that, we had looked at the, Revel, uh, the Thessalonian letters. Now, we're going to take those things. I'm going to keep referring back to those, which, of course, assumes you will remember what we studied. And I'm not, please don't uh, un- misunderstand how I'm saying that, because I'll keep reminding you of what we studied. 
But the Bible, the Bible is a progressively revealed word from God. Do you understand what I mean by progressively? Over time, just God keeps revealing more and more of his plan. And this book that we're about to study is the last book of his plan. When the ink dried on the last verse of Revelation 22, the canon was closed. God will give no more verbal revelation that people are instructed to write down. Do you understand that sentence? I mean, this, the, the canon is closed. The Bible ends. As the verbal revelation of God, the Bible ends with the book of Revelation. And that's why uh, this is a very important book to study. Not only because and it always is alluring to us, we're always kind of drawn to it, not only because it's prophecy, which it is, at least a good part of it is, but it's the final word of God. It's his final revelation. He's, he's insisting that his, his image bearers respond to this, meaning human beings, image bearers, that his, the humans respond to this. Here it is. This is the last revelation, verbally, revelation you're going to get. And so with all those introductory comments, I thought we'd just talk a little bit about some introductory points. John tells us at the beginning, and this is the John who wrote the gospel and wrote the little letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. This is the John who is, whom, whom throughout the New Testament he's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is the one who um, is part of that inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. Why, why Jesus did it that way, I don't know, but he chose an inner circle, and John was one of those. He saw almost everything and was at the center of almost everything that happened in Jesus' three years of ministry. And so as far as we know, and there's pretty de good degree of certainty on this, John is the only one of the 11 disciples that was not martyred. He lived almost to be 100 years old. And most, I mean, after the Lord returned to the Father and and um, the new order dawned, John spent most of his time in Ephesus, that very, very important city. And that was his base of operations, base of ministry. He discipled an enormous number of people. Many of those people whom he discipled are the leaders in the second century church, leaders in the early 100s. So John does what Jesus said, make disciples. And, G and John did that. John discipled Dozens, if not a hundred or more, uh, men to become leaders of the church. And because of what he was doing, he got in trouble with the Roman Empire. And Caesar Diocletian um, exiled him to the island of Patmos. He tells us that at the beginning of this book. I wrote this book on the island of Patmos. Patmos was a prison island. It was an island that the Roman Empire used to exile, uh, maybe that's not the right word, to send and to discipline prisoners. Now, on page 8 of your packet, and I know we're going ahead a little bit, but just to show you this, because we're going to see this right away in the book, you can find, here's the map I'm referring to at the top of page 8. It is a map that focuses on the western end of the Roman province of Asia. What country is this today? It's Asia, isn't it? And, uh, no, it's not Asia. It's, it's Greece. I heard, I heard some people. It's Turkey. It's the modern country of Turkey. But at this time, it was called the Roman province of Asia. Well, anyway, my only point for now is just, if you can look, it's almost at the center of the map. You can see it's a little tiny island, and it, the print on it, thankfully, is pretty, pretty large. You can see it, Patmos, P-A-T-M-O-S. You see that? Right above the box. Right above, there's a little <laughs> box. It's a little bit off-center, but it's almost in the center of the map. And that's Patmos. That's where John was, was sent as a prisoner. So it's a prison colony. And he was sent there by the Caesar, by Emperor uh, uh, Domitian. And he was there for a period of time. Several extra-biblical writers tell us that. Irenaeus tells us that. Tells us he was there for almost five years. And, and so it's during that time, the time that he's in that prison island, that he receives these visions, these, these revelations, and writes them down. 
That's a very important piece of information, only because we know that he was exiled. We have <laughs> records that he was exiled, extra-biblical records, and other leaders of the church at that time who wrote, tell us he was exiled. So this isn't some fantasy. We can document John was exiled. And he was exiled there. We know exactly the years he was there. And so this is an historical fact that gives it credence and credibility to what John is telling us happened to him there. And as we'll, we'll see here in these early verses, the very first thing that happens to him after he gets over the introductory stuff is Jesus appears to him. And Jesus appears to him, and, and the descriptions of Jesus, and I'm going to want to look at other parts of the Bible, are almost identical to the description in Matthew 17 when Jesus said the Mount of Transfiguration. It's almost identical to the vision Isaiah has in Isaiah chapter 6 where he's commissioned to be the prophet to Israel. And so it's, there's a, just a consistency throughout the Bible of how Jesus is described when he appears in all his glory, and that's what happens here. So the other thing I thought I'd just mention, the year is a, it's almost certain is 95 A.D. It could be a year earlier or a bit year later. But the writing of this book is A.D. 95. We are, we are almost absolutely certain about that. It could vary a little bit either side. But unlike some of the books of the New Testament, we're not, we can say within about five, six, seven years, this one, it's within months. Because we know for certain when he was uh, exiled to Patmos. <clears throat> I thought I'd make one or two other comments, and this is in that introductory material right at the beginning. Um, when John is writing this book, and he's in exile, in prison, on this prison colony. Um, the Roman Empire is at its height. This, the, you, are, you are at almost the peak. It, it's over the next oh, 80, 90 years, but till, you know, around 160 or so. So we're right up the peak of the Roman Empire. This is when Rome is its wealthiest, when it, it, it was its most powerful. It, its empire was at about its largest. Socially, you have an extreme disparity between the very, the very, very wealthy and everybody else who's poor, <laughs> for the most part. And the empire is built on slave labor. Now, again, as we've talked before in some of our studies, the slave labor is don't think of pre-Civil War racial chattel slavery. That's not the way it was in the ancient world. The average slave could own property. The average slave received a day's wage. The average slave would be a slave for about a decade. Most of the time, you went into slavery because of personal debt. Or you were conquered by another power for a period of time or whatever. But that, uh, of, the, of the Roman Empire's population, approximately 100 to 120 million, 60 million were slaves. So that's, that's the workers, the the. The, the people who did all of the manual labor were slaves. But again, when you think of slaves, don't think of racial, chattel slavery that existed in the, in the South before the Civil War. Politically, as I said, this is a time of the, the, the great Roman Empire. The, the Caesars are authoritarian powers. And this is a very, very, very important point for the Book of Revelation. The worship of Caesar as a god is in full swing. They are, throughout the Mediterranean world of the Roman Empire, they are forcing people to worship Caesar. And throughout the empire, everywhere, there are statues of the reigning Caesar. And you are to bow down to him. You are to offer sacrifices to him. That is very important information for some of the languages used in chapter 2 and chapter 3. When Paul, I'm sorry, when Jesus is addressing through John the seven churches of Revelation. And I want to talk about, I think, the best way to approach a study of that. And you're going to see that Jesus is going to talk about these Caesar cults and the things that are, could draw them away from worship of him. It's important to remember that. And then religiously, 
Um, by the time John is writing this book, the Jews are no longer in Israel. They're no longer in Jerusalem. The great Jewish civil war, which began in 67 AD and ends in 70, and the final last spurt of it is at Masada in 73 AD, the Jews have been dispersed. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been burned to the ground. There is nothing in Jerusalem. And Rome is about to pass a law that says it's a capital offense for a Jew to be in Jerusalem. So we are now at the point where Judaism, the Jewish religion, in Israel, in the land, the holy land, that you and I go to visit when we make our trips there, that didn't exist as Jewish distinctive land. It was now totally destroyed by Rome, and Rome is spreading the Jews out. It's forcing them to just get out. <clears throat> and this is that fun, what they call the diaspora. That's the final diaspora, the final spreading of the Jews. And they're going to, they're going to, uh, huge numbers of them are going to head to Spain. And Spain's going to become one of the great centers of Judaism until Ferdinand and Isabella destroy it in, in 1492. That's way ahead in the future. So this is, an, this is a period of time of tremendous upheaval, but it's a time of tremendous apex-like power over Rome in terms of its wealth, its politics, and its military. And so as we hear and read some of the things that John writes about, and especially what Jesus says in chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's directed at this kind of stuff. Because in the middle of all this kind of stuff are Christians trying to make it, trying to live, trying to represent the Savior. And that's why to some extent people are starting to say in some of their, I mean Christian leaders are starting to say, you know, we are headed toward a situation in the world today for Christians that's very similar to the first century. And, and I, I'm, I'm finding that in my own thinking somewhat helpful that the 21st century might be like the first century. Growth of Christianity, explosive growth of Christianity, but intense persecution of Christianity. That's characterized the first century. Now, explosive growth in the 21st century is not happening in the United States or Europe. It's happening in Asia and Africa and Latin America. It's exploding there. It is not exploding in the United States. And it is virtually dead in Western Europe. My son lives there, and on a typical Sunday morning in London, about 2% of the people go to church. And these great, great churches of England are museum pieces. And that's the flip that has occurred. All right. Did Jeremiah make any predictions about uh, Caesars? Not so much Jeremiah. Jeremiah doesn't, Isaiah does, and some of the minor prophets do, yeah. But not, not so much Jeremiah. So John overlived Paul? I'm sorry? John lived after Paul died? Or? After Paul died? Oh, yeah. Paul is executed in AD 68. John writes this in AD 95. Oh, yeah. Yeah, John, John as I said earlier, uh, maybe you weren't here yet, but John, John, like all the, unlike all the other apostles, including Paul, I guess, is is not martyred. He lives he lives to almost a hundred years old, um, and his his base is in, except when he was on Patmos, his base was in in Ephesus. So who, who approved the visions that John got to be for God? For God? John himself. There was any kind of dispute or disagreements about. Mm. The, Visions that John was getting as well, there there was very early on. There was some, uh, I guess, dispute would be a, a word that you could use, concern and some disagreement. Is the Book of Revelation, which is really what we're talking about, not just his, but everything he wrote down as a book, is this really an inspired canonical book? And initially, there was some concern about it, but very quickly, it was, it was accepted. And it's circulating widely and being accepted. And it meets the tests. The tests for can the tests, when I say canonicity, I mean a book that's recognized as inspired. The test for candidate was it written by an apostle? Uh, does it quote accurately and represent the consistency of the Old Testament text 
prophecy and the New Testament text that we know. John fits with that. Because as I said, it builds on Daniel, builds on the things that Paul had written. And then the third test was really how widely is it circulating? How widely is it being accepted by church leaders as consistently reflecting everything else we know about God's revelation? And so it didn't take very long for revelation to be accepted. But there was, because it is a... um, with the exception of Daniel, which we've just studied, and some of the things that are in the book of Ezekiel, um, other than those two, it's, it's saying things in fantastic ways that are not being said in other books of the Bible. But it, again, what helps to confirm this is clearly revelation from God was the consistency of what's being said with Daniel, Paul's Thessalonian letters, and Ezekiel. It's saying the same thing. Yes, this is from God. This is canonical, and it was accepted. Into Jim, I think you had your hand up next. I'm just going to ask a question, observation. If this was written in 1985, and John was a contemporary of Jesus, he had to be 90-some years old. Yeah, exactly. He, and when he is in prison on Patmos, he is in his 90s. That's correct. That's incredible. That's, it? it is. It's really incredible. And uh, I, I doubt that any of you have read but Patmos is a horrible place. It is a rock that just juts out of the, the, the eastern Mediterranean. It's a horrible place. So those years he was there would have really been rough. I mean, it, was a, it is a horrible place. But Rome didn't choose the Taj Mahal for prison islands. You know, I mean, it, was it was... Not built yet, huh? It was not built yet. Yeah, no, yeah, right. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, yeah, you're, that's a good observation, Jim. I mean, he's, he's a very old man here when he is in exile, um, or I should say as a prisoner more than in exile. So, yep. But he, he's an amazing man. John is one of those guys that uh, he, you talk about toughness and stick and tenacity. John's your man. He has all those characterized him. On the heels of that, what, um, what can we expect as we share the gospel, as we're asked to do, uh, in this postmodern America today, um, what hope do we have to be able to penetrate uh, post-Christian thinking in America today with this word as we go forth and as we share? Such a small question, Fred. <laughs> oh goodness. Um, let's let me. Let me put it um, the way Paul puts it. Be faithful in proclaiming the truth. You will meet resistance, but be faithful in proclaiming the truth. You will be threatened, but be faithful in proclaiming the truth. It may cost you your life, but be faithful in presenting the truth. Present this one last. <laughs> yeah. Revelation. I mean, you can't I mean, that. Yeah, it I mean, wouldn't be the first book you'd probably be able to explain to somebody that doesn't believe in God. Go. Yeah, I, if somebody's just considering the claims of Christ, I wouldn't direct them to Revelation. Right. I really wouldn't. <laughs> it, 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 I, I often put it this way. I think I used that, that illustration before in our group. To me, this is family. These are family issues. And what I mean by that is an unbeliever, a person who doesn't know the Lord and doesn't know, this is going to be a crazy book to get on. Yeah. Don't get them into this book. I mean, you know, obviously, if they want to study it, you can't prevent that. But this is not the book to get them to direct them to. This is one of those books, it's like a discussion of God's sovereignty and election and predestination. They're family issues. You've got to get into the family of, of God through faith in Christ and start to study his word, and, and then we can start talking about these things. Because there's absolutely no category in an unbeliever's mind for reading a book like this. I mean, it's, it's like the Lord of the Rings times three, you know, you know, or the some of these fantastic things that, I mean, it's, it's just, but without the context of everything else in God's word... So I would just, I, I've never, ever, ever encouraged an unbeliever to read this book. What do you encourage them? 
you need somebody to if they are really interested, it depends on what they're asking. It depends on what they're asking. But the Gospel of John is a great book to yeah. start people on. So. You know, uh, with the book of Revelation, you know, it, it's like you said, it's a family discussion among the Christians. Yeah. But one of the problems that I see is it has been interpreted in different ways because it has codes, it has things that is not understood. And I'm not, I've never said the book of Revelation, so I'm very interested in what you have to start. I want to delay more, but it has been a reason for a, like division among churches and among people more than it should be. Do you think it should oh, absolutely. be divided like that over it or, or not? You know? Well, I, no, uh, but let me, let me put it this way. When people study the book of Revelation, they bring, if I use the word presupposition, do you know what I mean? people bring some presuppositions to their study. And almost always those presuppositions involve two things. They've already settled on the issue of when the rapture is going to occur. And two, they've already settled on the issue of whether there is a literal millennial kingdom or not. So they've already settled on those things. And they bring that. Now, I'm not saying that is, that's wrong. It isn't wrong. Because those kinds of questions can be decided from God's word very, uh, very clearly. But in saying that, it is also very, very important for you and me, as men who are serious about God's word, is that Christians are going to disagree on some of this stuff. And disagreement on the timing of the rapture doesn't keep you out of heaven. That's not a salvation issue. I'm not saying it isn't an important issue. It's a very important issue. But it's not a salvation issue. And... The, I mean, I studied with, and I have in my in my life of ministry all over this country. I've been with people who are post-tribulationalists. If you don't even know what that means, you'll get to know what it means. Mid-tribulationists, and they're wonderful people. I love them, but we disagree on that. And you know, quite frankly, we are going to spend eternity with them. Amen. I mean, we are going to be in heaven and in the new heaven and new earth with them, and so. It's okay to love them and still disagree on some of these things. So I'm saying all that to get to this primary point. We study this with a degree of humility. At least we should. We should study this with a degree of humility. But we start, and that's how I want to get into it now, we started with the confidence that this is the Word of God. And God wants us to know what's in this book, or he wouldn't have put it in his Bible. (laughs) And so therefore, because it's in the Bible, we do need to study it. I mean, I have pastoral friends, some in this city and some in other parts of the country, just say, I don't teach the book of Revelation. And I said, really? I mean, you've been at this church 15 years and you know, because it's too controversial. I've had no divorces, haven't they, caused by it, though? (laughs) <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. I would never ask you about Revelation. Uh, you never know. Bizarre thing. But it's so, and I just said to him, I said, you know, I would really, really ask you to consider doing some of these things because your people need to be exposed to this part of God's word. One at 27%, to be very precise, 27% of the Bible's prophecy. And if you're going to say, I'm not going to teach prophecy because it's too controversial, you're leaving out over a quarter of God's word. You're getting close to a third there. And that just, if you're going to preach the whole counsel of God, you can't stay away from this. And so, you know, anyway. So can we, can we get into the text now? Would that be all right? Are there any other questions? Uh, Rob, did you have your... I, I'm going to hold it. You, you've answered a great deal of my questions. Oh, okay. Well, feel free to... You know, or email me or whatever, I feel free to, to ask me. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Let's get into the book. And then I'll, as we get into it, I'll be referring you to some of the charts and maps and things that are in your packet that uh, we get started. The opening, the opening of the book is a very important opening. Again, I, I want you to make sure you see this. They begin, the book begins, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not the Revelation of John. The title of this book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And then what I'd, I'd like you to observe which God gave to show to his bondservants. Uh, sometimes that's translated to his slaves. To, to those who are committed to him. The things which must shortly take place. He sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. And John's going to tell us in verse 4 why he's there and in, in, in verse 9 why he's there and all that who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, if you're into underlining things in your Bible, that's something you should underline. Even to all that he saw. Because that's what this book is. At least not all of it, but much of it. John is writing down what he saw. So he was commanded to do it. He is a testimony to it. Notice that language. He was commanded. To, he, he, he gives testimony to it. He bore witness to it. Why is it saying all that to us? He didn't make this up. This came from God through an angel to John. And so often, I shouldn't say often, but sometimes the angel helps him interpret it. Sometimes the angel doesn't. So all this is doing is establishing. This isn't just a bunch of made-up stuff. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which was communicated to John through an angel. And John wrote down what he saw. And then as we studied in verse 3 a couple minutes ago, there's a blessing. Blessing, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy and heed the things which are in it, for the time is near. As I, as I mentioned, there are seven blessings in this book. This is the first of seven. But this one's a very personal one because God is promising to bless those who read, who hear it. You know, and the reason that's is because so often in the ancient uh, world, the early church, they didn't have their own Bible, so they're hearing the word of God read. That's all that means there. And and then to heed it. All right? Okay, good. Let's go. <laughs> I just was there, I'm kind of waiting if you're, if you're with me. Now, I want to spend a minute or two. I'm going to look at that map here in just a second. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... In your notes, I wrote that uh, on, on page uh, five, and I want to look at that map. This, this is a very, very important point here. These are the seven Asiarchs. This is the count. These cities represent the most important cities in the Roman province of Asia. And the leaders of each one of those cities would meet in council and get the orders from Rome and taxation policies and so on. So John, let me rephrase that, Jesus is choosing to speak to the churches that are in the seven most important churches in the Roman province of Asia. Probably could say seven of the most important churches in the entire Mediterranean world at that time. It would sort of be like the, the Lord, but that breaks down as an analogy, but you know, the Lord wanting to sit in council with the seven most important churches in the United States, or the seven most important churches in England, or the seven most important churches in in sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, he's, Jesus is, is choosing to address, speak to, and relate these revelations to these seven churches. And as we get through the chapter one, which is a description of the Lord, he addresses very, very specifically all seven of these churches. And it's, it's, it's really a, it's a neat thing to study. I've, several times in my life, I've, I've done conferences just on the seven churches. It's a great series of messages because it's, this is kind of like, this is the head of the church's view of his church. 
This is how the head of the church, the head of the body of the church, as he's in the New Testament, as he's called, this is what he wants to see in his church. And so if you take all seven of those churches and turn them all into positives, you have the seven characteristics of a very healthy church. That's how I'm going to study with you. Because he has some positive things to say, this is Jesus now, and some negative things to say, wanting them to correct them. So we'll turn them into positive. It's a great description of what a revived, renewed, spiritually healthy church should look like. But we're not there yet. But he's choosing. I want you to, so if you turn to page, uh, what is that, eight or seven? I forget where it is. Yeah, page eight. I mean, just, you, you, you need to, and I, I don't mean to order you, and command that you do things, but if you're to maximize your study in these next weeks, try, and I, and I just took a highlighter and highlighted them, but I've, I've helped you locate Patmos, okay? Now, do the best you can. If you see Patmos, just go a little bit to the northeast, and as you you're, get out of the coast and get to the land, you'll see Ephesus. See it? Northeast. Yeah, if you're, if you're in Patmos, you already should have found Patmos because we found that earlier. Just kind of go a little bit of a northeasterly direction and go into the land. You'll see Ephesus, the big port city. That's the most important city. Because Ephesus was the gateway to Asia. Major road systems flowed out of Ephesus. Okay, now, now I'm going to, well, I'll just stand here. <laughs> so if you found Ephesus, go immediately to the north, and you see Pergamum. Now, what I do is I encourage you to circle it or put a little check, because from here on out, I'm going to keep referring to it. Now, find Ephesus. Oh, you got it. I know where it is. You don't know where it is now, but you're not going to. Okay? So you found Ephesus. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Uh, from Ephesus, go immediately to the north. You'll see Smyrna. So it's immediately to the north. And then from Smyrna, go immediately to the north. You'll see Pergamum. So we've got three down, four to go. You found Pergamum, then go almost immediately to the east along the road there. You see Thyatira. See it? Okay, if you're at Thyatira, then kind of go following the road. Go almost due south, kind of a southeast direction, and you'll see Sardis. And if you found Sardis, then go immediately to the east along the road, and you see Philadelphia. And if you're in Philadelphia, go immediately, again, on the road there, the line, that's a road, kind of in the southeasterly direction, and you see Laodicea, the last of the seven. Now you've got Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. They are the Asiarchs. They are the seven key cities of the Roman province of Asia. And every one of those had a significant church. Are all of them in Turkey? I'm sorry? Is it all of them in they, Turkey? Today they would all be in Turkey. Mm -hmm. With one exception, they're all in ruins. With one exception, they're all in ruins. Which one? Um, the, uh, Smyrna, it has a new name. I've Ishmael or something like that. Smyrna has it's a new name. It starts with an I, but the rest of them are in ruins. Ephesus is is uh, the ruins of uh, a, that was an incredible city, and a lot of the ruins are still there. The, the, well, anyway, uh, Pergamum, another incredible city. Some of the rest of them are smaller, not quite as majestic. All right, let's continue. We're in verse four. Uh, we've got the map. You've got the location, and hopefully you can remember these as we study this in the weeks to come. Grace to you and peace. Now, this is John speaking. Does that sound familiar? So many of the New Testament uh, letters, books, that's the salutation. Very common. We've talked about that before. They're combining two, warm, two greetings, the Greek greeting and the Jewish greeting, combining them together. Charis and shalom. That's a very common thing to do. Now, here, I want you to notice this. From him... And most of your translations will have that pronoun capitalized. From him who is, who was, 
and who is to come. Who is the him? Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. And it, this is really interesting. You see this several times in the Bible. You see it a lot in this book. It's a curious, isn't it curious to put it this way? Who is, who was, and who is to come. He's past, present, and future. That's a literary way of saying why. He's eternal. Any point in time, Jesus is there. Because Jesus is above and beyond time. Because Jesus is eternal. Because Jesus is God. Because Jesus is the great I Am. And so, it, it, this, for you and me, this is a weird way to say it. Why didn't he just say, from him who's eternal? But it's, it's a literary, it was rather common at that time, who is, who was, and who is to come. Time does not measure Jesus. You can't measure time. You can't measure Jesus, excuse me, by means of time. Because he's eternal. He will say, as he introduces himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Don't put a marker of time on me. Because I am the great I am. So it's just, just don't miss this. Now this is going to, this, this could cause you to stumble, it shouldn't. And from the seven spirits, or literally the sevenfold spirit. In your notes, I, I, uh, I, 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 I translate it that way. And from the sevenfold spirit before his throne. This is the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and actually a little bit into verse 3, are the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit described. So what John is, and, and John is revealing this, but to the one who sits on the throne, who is not bound by time, and to the sevenfold spirit, or the spirit with seven key attributes, who's before the throne. And throughout the, through, uh, throughout the book of Revelation, this is how it's going to be described. By this, I mean the throne. The throne room of God is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in front of them. That's how spatially it's described. In Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, which we'll be studying in the, at the rate we're going in January, but when we get to that, you'll see these incredible descriptions of the throne of God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father, the right hand is the Son, and the Spirit's in front of him. This is what John is describing here. Are you stumbling over that, or do you understand what, what I'm saying? I don't understand the seven spirits. It's, as I said, Woody, the sevenfold spirit. The spirit with seven characteristics. And if you go back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and into verse 3, you see those seven attributes, those seven descriptive phrases of his characteristics. True, eternal, I mean, all those wonderful things. That's all it's saying. I mean, it's easy to stumble over this stuff. Well, where, the, Isaiah 11, 2. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And actually the last, seventh attribute is into verse 3. And then look at verse 5 and verse 6. Don't miss this. See if you can count them. These are all of the titles of Jesus. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And John just can't stop it. Amen. He's, it's like a prayer, a doxology. I'm going to say amen. <laughs> when you get all excited about your past, of course that never happens to you, but you get all excited about biblical truth and you just exclaim, amen. That's what John's doing. Let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at this. And from Jesus Christ. Now remember, Jesus the Christ. Jesus is his name given at birth. 
In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. In Greek, it's Jesus, Jesus, which means Savior. Christ is his title. Christos is Greek. Messiah is Hebrew. So this is the Savior Messiah. That's what Jesus Christ means. The faithful witness. What does that mean? Well, see Hebrews chapter 1. See John chapter 14, verse 6, 7, 8, 9. He that has mean, seen me has seen the Father. In these last days, God, who is spirit, has revealed himself in his Son. So the faithful witness is the faithful witness of who God is. If you want to know what God is like, the Bible says, look at Jesus. He is the faithful witness of who God is. Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room, he that has seen me has seen the Father. But he's a faithful witness in that he has done everything the Father asked him to do in the Incarnation. Okay, next, firstborn of the dead. What does that mean? That's not as hard. <laughs> Say it again? Resurrection. The resurrection. Firstborn is prototokos, a point of authority, a point of, of rank. He is the first one to receive the resurrected body. What does that imply? There's a lot more coming. <laughs> And that's the promise he's made to you, and that's the promise he's made to me, and to everyone who's put their faith in him. And that, that, is, that, is, a, that is said throughout the New Testament. In Paul in, in Colossians 1, that's one of the titles he uses. Jesus is firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of the dead. That's, a, that's nothing unusual. This, is, this third one is really interesting. Ruler. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ruler of the king's of the earth. What does that mean? He's in control. Of all kings, he far exceeds any one of them. Yes. That, that's right. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. That's a theme of Paul. That's a theme in Paul's writings, especially in Colossians chapter 1. But it's in other places. This is a major theme. He's the, other parts of the scriptures put it, he's king of kings and lord of lords. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. Because of his obedience to the Father to go to the cross, the Father has exalted him, given him, given him a name that's above every name, and at that name, future tense, at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now see, whether anyone acknowledges it or not, he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. But there's coming a day when everyone will acknowledge it. That's still future. That hasn't happened yet. You and I, when we put our faith in him, we acknowledge it. He is the Lord of your life. And in one sense, part of the things we wrestle with is what does that mean to me now? He is the, whether I, you know, acknowledge or always know, he is, that's what he is. And that's all that this is saying. This is who he is. Now, as this book is going to explain to us, it's going to explain to us when and how, what Paul promised. Some days coming, everybody's going to bow. This is going to explain to us how this is going to happen. It's going to explain to us when this is going to happen. I don't mean that in a date, but I mean the events that surround it of when it's going to happen. This is this is just wonderful stuff. I mean, I, I excite, I get excited about this. Don't you? This is great stuff. This is describing who Jesus is. He's not just some obscure guy in some backwater town in Israel. He's the Lord of the universe, <laughs> and he has the right 
to say what he's going to say in this book. And you may not, I don't mean you specific, I mean humanity. You may not like it. You may push back and say, I don't want to live under this, which is a really stupid thing to say, but so many people say it. But there's coming a day when he's going to say, the time of grace is over. It's time to bring this to an end. Now that hasn't happened yet. Second Peter 3 tells us why God keeps delaying. And the answer is God continues to increase the population of heaven. That's why he delays. But there's going to come a point when the delay is over. <clears throat> Let's continue in verse 5. I'd really, I'd really love to get verse 6 finished. Now he kind of switches from who he is and his magnificent position to what he did and why he did it. To him who loves us. He loves us. The definition of agape love is you give. You give. You give of yourself. That's who Jesus is. He gave of himself in his death, burial, and resurrection because he loves us. And because of that, he released us from our sins by his blood. That's the price that he paid. And you know what that means. This is redemption. This is the language of salvation. So he loves us, and that's why he died for us and released us from the bondage to sin. And then look at verse 6 as the result of this. He made us to be a kingdom. You and I are citizens of his kingdom. We take up a new citizenship with a new passport, new rights and and responsibilities and privileges that go with it because we now represent the king. But he says something else. We're priests to his God and Father. What does that mean? We're priests. And the image you have is, you know, somebody in a big robe and offering sacrifices and blood sacrifices in Jerusalem. That's probably not the image here that we are to have because all of that has been completed and fulfilled. So what's the role of priest that we have? We're priests in the new temple. We're priests who are teaching the new message. We're priests who have offered ourselves as a sacrifice to him. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. And as priests, we're continual intercessors for others. And we intercede for others through prayer, not through offering sacrifices. You see that you, you and I? It's just this is one of these really. This is loaded with all kind of neat stuff. We're not only citizens of the kingdom; we're the kingdom. Kingdom is made up of citizens, and we're the citizens. We're the kingdom. But in that kingdom, we have a role. We're priests. Offering sacrifices? No, we've offered ourselves as a sacrifice. Interceding for others, absolutely. Interceding through prayer, through empathy, through compassion. Because we represent the living God. And this kingdom is made up of citizens who buy into the king's values, the king's morals, and the king's ethical standards. And we are the intercessors and representatives of our king in this kingdom. That's, I mean, that's, just, that's you. That is I. That's who we are. You want to talk about that? The idea of priest? I mean, you got that. Why don't you flesh it out for some examples? I'm sorry? You want to flesh it out with some examples? I thought I had done that. No, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. Well, you, you know, it's, 
a priest represents someone higher. You know, I mean, the, the, like the Levitical priests are representing God to the people of Israel. They were to teach them the law, and then a, two, two of the groups of the Levites are the ones who would offer the sacrifices. So how do, how do we apply that to us? Well, you and I, you and I are to teach and represent the things of God to others as priests. We are to intercede on behalf of others. Who would that be? It would be our children. It would be you know, our loved ones. It could be people that are not yet in the kingdom. I mean, it's that, it's that functioning role of a priest, teaching, interceding, representing, and that's, that's our role now because it's, it's it's really it's it's an odd it's well not odd it's it's an unusual way, not totally unusual in the New Testament, but it's an unusual way to see both of these things in the same verse. That we are citizens of the new kingdom is all over the New Testament. I mean, it's just everywhere. But that we are priests in the new kingdom that's that's only in Peter, and it's only in Hebrews. So it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit of a different image or metaphor of describing who we are. But just think, you're teaching and representing someone greater. You intercede on behalf of others. You offer yourself as a living sacrifice. As the priests did, we do it very personally and very completely in the name of the one we represent. A priest represents someone and intercedes on behalf of others to that someone and serves those on the name of that someone. For you and me, we're serving the one in verse 5, the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. He is referring to one kingdom and priests. Is there yes. any significance to single kingdom and different priests or not? I, I'm not sure we should divide it or split it like that. There is one kingdom, and that is very consistent with what we studied in Daniel. It's the triumph of the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God is going to triumph. We saw it in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 11, Daniel 12. The kingdom of God is going to triumph. We are the citizens of that kingdom, and we have a new role. We, I, I like to put it, we are representing our king as the role of a priest who intercedes, who sacrifices. We are presenting ourselves as a sacrifice to our king. Romans 12, 1, it's all over the New Testament. And, and we are proclaiming and, and teaching the things that are important to our king, which is what the Levites did. They preached the law to the people. That's what they were supposed to do. And so for you and me, we are taking God, our king's values and his morals and his ethical standards. And we're representing and teaching that. That's, this is who we are. Kind of exciting stuff. I, mean, I get excited about this because this is, this is how this is being presented. But it's almost 10 hours, so that means I must quit. But, oh, if you have time, read from verse 7. Uh, I don't know it's long, but if you can, get all the way through verse 20. If you can't through get verse 20, go through verse 16. And if you can't get through verse 16, at least go through verse 7, uh, through 11. But it's just, I, I just want you, the, the flow and pattern of this, it's presenting Jesus. Not as a suffering Savior, but as the Lord of the universe. Amen. Who has every right to explain this is how it's going to all come to an end. And we're going to usher in the final kingdom of God. That's what this is really all about. So anyway, good stuff. Lord, thank you for uh, the beginning of our study of this a magnificent book. It's an important book. It's the last book of your, of your scripture. It's the last inspired book of the Bible. And it, it brings everything to a conclusion. And that's what we're studying. We thank you that there's no dispute, no lack of clarity in how Jesus is presented in these early verses. He's the Lord of the universe. Uh, his, he's the sovereign Lord. He's the beginning, the end, the Alpha, the Omega. He who, who is, who was, and who is to come. You can't put time constraints on him. He's the eternal Lord and sovereign King of this universe. And that's why John, he just can't help himself. He launches into a praise there in the next verse, which we didn't quite cover. 
Though that's the theme of this book. It's the majestic Lord of the universe laying out the final steps of his plan that he has for this rebellious planet and he's going to bring everything to a conclusion as every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether they desire to worshipfully or they will finally acknowledge it at the end. Thank you, Lord, that we, and I trust that's true of every man here, we have put our faith in this Lord Jesus. We believe what he says. We trust in his promises. He is the source of our hope. He is the source of our salvation. And he is our coming king, whom we worship now and represent as we present ourselves as sacrifices to you, in a sense, as we intercede on behalf of others, and as we represent your values and your standards to others through how we live and through what we say. Help us to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. See you next week.